0: On today's show, LeBron, Anthony Davis, and the Los Angeles Lakers are your inaugural NBA in season tournament champions. How budding superstar Tyrese Halliburton and the young Indiana Pacers handled being on the national stage, and how James Harden and the LA Clippers are finding their groove as of late. It's all coming up right here on today's Locked On NBA. You are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, and welcome to another Monday edition of Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts. I'm your Monday host, Jackson Gatlin, also host of Locked On Rockets, right here on the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Now, today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks, the easiest and most exciting way. To play daily fantasy sports, go to pricepicks.com slash locked on NBA and use code all lowercase locked on NBA for a first deposit match up to $100. And as always, thank you so much for making Locked on NBA your first listen each and every day, free and available on all podcast platforms, including YouTube, whether that's on your way to work, on your lunch break in the gym. Thank you for making us part of your day every single day. Joining us now is the host of Locked on Lakers, Andy Kamenetsky, who can track down wherever you listen to your podcast and on YouTube. Just search Locked on Lakers here to talk about your inaugural NBA in-season tournament winners. The Los Angeles Lakers, the they got their medals. They got their dubs. LeBron 80, all of it. Look. Andy, I've already seen some people making, you know, some jokes about the significance of this, this, this title win, this, you know, NBA in season tournament talking about calling it banner 17.5 for the Lakers, um, you know, up in the rafters. And I really don't think we should be downplaying this because to me. The NBA in season term, it worked, right? It was playoff intensity, playoff atmosphere in December. You had stars like LeBron James and Anthony Davis bought in and playing their hardest. So give me your thoughts on how it went before we get into kind of some of the the action itself.
1: First of all, I guarantee a lot of those fan bases would take that 0.5 banner. (laughs) They would take that half a banner if it was offered to them, because why wouldn't you? Um, You know, I. I would say if it's good enough for the Lakers, who have other than the Celtics more than anybody, I would say it's good enough for whoever is trying to make fun of it. And the truth is, after the game, LeBron and Anthony Davis, they said this is not a championship. Like they recognize this is not a championship. They recognize that this does not mean that their end game, which is the NBA championship, the traditional championship, is either in the bag or has already been won or whatever, like they they recognize what this is. But like you mentioned, there was a playoff intensity to this, particularly as the rounds went along. There were teams that were upset by their performance in this. You know, you had Bobby Portis angry reportedly per, per Chris Haynes after the Bucs got eliminated, saying that everybody from the players to Adrian Griffin needs to do better. Kevin Durant seemed unhappy with them not winning. The Wolves seem unhappy about not winning. Certainly, the Pacers wanted to win that thing. The Pelicans wanted to win. And what, as somebody who, I was not anti this tournament in the beginning, but I was somewhere between unsure what it was and skeptical that it would, that it wouldn't take a while to take off just because the stakes are quite literally invented, like in the moment, you know, which to some degree all championships are, all leagues are. This is all created at some point, and it takes a while for it, I guess, to really mean anything. What I underestimated was these players in the NBA are competitive psychopaths. And the minute you put anything in front of them that you can win, for the most part, they want to win it. And from the beginning, I think LeBron wanted to be Part of the first ever team to win this, you know, the leader of it, the MVP, because if this thing does eventually gain real cachet in NBA culture, as he noted, records come and go, but the firsts are always the first. He will be the first ever MVP of this tournament.
0: And it's going to look, I mean, down the line when they when they eventually come back down 20, 30 years from Ohio, however long and they decide to rename the uh, NBA in-season tournament trophy after somebody, then who better fit to name the trophy after than the guy who won it first, LeBron James? Quite possibly. We'll see.
1: Well, look, that would mean that the tournament took off and gained significance. If, if you're deciding who to name the trophy after in 20 years, by definition, that means it's popular enough to keep going for two decades.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I I. I I was kind of skeptical about it, too. It, you know, it seemed like the format was maybe a little bit confusing. And there's definitely areas that can be improved upon going into further seasons and, and next year and whatnot. But for the NBA to kind of throw this together and to have kind of the, the pizzazz around it, right? The in-season tournament courts, the hype, you know, it it worked. I really do think it was not you no know, not not like a resounding success, but I think it worked. I think that you have to be happy with the product the NBA put out there and the way that it all kind of culminated in a game that was high-stakes basketball in December, right? Right. This is, you know, the NBA is a product that a lot of people, you know, historically haven't really taken seriously until, you know, Christmas Day basketball is kind of the unofficial official start of the NBA season. And people were invested and they cared about these games before that date actually passed.
1: Absolutely. In that sense, it is a total win for the league and, you know, for Again, for I mean, I get look, I'm as I'm as big a fan of snarky jokes as anybody. Like really, <laughs> truly, if you listen, if you listen to our podcast, you will you will, locked on Lakers, you will know that. But at the same time, you can't be the NBA fan that complains that players don't care in November and December and January and nothing really matters. And, you know, these guys get millions of dollars and they don't care until it gets closer to the playoffs and then turn around, and see these guys actually really care and then say, well, this thing is made up. It's stupid. It's right. At that point, you're just complaining for the sake of complaining.
0: Speaking of snarky jokes, how many uh times are you going to put out there over at Locked on Lakers that Michael Jeffrey Jordan never won an NBA in-season tournament
1: championship? That's not even a joke. It never happened. There we go. He has go. not done it. You're, you're
0: right. You're right. Look, I don't, another, need a jo- another, I don't need a joke. Another point in the goat debate for uh, LeBron. Facts Ames. are not jokes, Jackson. <laughs> All right. Look. The actual game itself, the, the the title game against the Pacers, we saw what can only be dubbed a a, a masterclass performance from Anthony Davis. We saw the ad the best version of ad that we know that he can be at times it's a bit of a roller coaster you know at times with ad you know the ups and the downs in his play but he had 41 points 20 rebounds a 40 20 game 41 20 rebounds he had five assists to go with that as along with four blocks the only other lakers that have ever posted a 40 25 stat line like that elgin baylor i believe did it seven times and then wilt chamberlain did it a couple times how was ad able to be so dominant against this pacers team
1: Well, in part because Anthony Davis at the top of his game is one of the best players in the league. I think he is hands down the best defensive player in the league. And I think he is not even debatably the most versatile defensive player in the league. And, you know, you talked about the ups and downs with AD. Mostly that's about his offense. And there are times where I think AD does not assert himself as much as would be ideal offensively. You know, sometimes I think the focus on his offensive inconsistencies really come down to how much you're trying to take off the plate of LeBron. Because last year in the regular season, Anthony Davis averaged, I think, 25 points a game. Like, that, that is hardly nothing. That being said, though, you know, the idea of like, nobody expects him to average 40 and 20, but like the idea of, playing at his upper end as often as possible. On one hand, that is the demand of any superstar, much less the superstar of the Lakers that the organization is dying to see become truly the franchise face. But I would argue there is no star player in the league who has more asks of him on both sides of the ball than AD. Like he is asked to be a defensive anchor, a guy that... Will guard along the perimeter, then get back, become a, an absolute shop wrecker in the lane, a shot blocker, a rebounding machine. And then he is also needed to, if not carry the offense and be the offensive focal point, somebody who feels like a very, very 1A. That's a lot. Like, he, I think it would be very difficult to come up with somebody in the league with those type of asks. It maybe was Giannis before, but now that Giannis has Dame, no, not offensively. I don't know if there's anybody else who does what AD is asked to do. So yes, demands are high and they need to be high. But I do think there needs to be some degree of perspective of just how hard it is for AD to be the guy that he is capable of being, but still it's a lot.
0: Can Anthony Davis keep answering the call and being this dominant version of himself? What does the Lakers winning the in-season tournament say about their chances to win the big trophy down the line later this season? Y'all have us covered for all of that and so much more over at Locked on Lakers. Andy, thanks for stopping by Locked on NBA
1: with me. Anytime.
0: Coming up, how budding superstar Tyrese Halliburton and the young Indiana Pacers handled being on the national stage with games with high stakes for the first time in many of their careers and what they can learn from the NBA in-season tournament experience. We're going to get there in just one moment. First, today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. PrizePix is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America. They're the easiest and most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports because it's just you against the numbers. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, you just pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. PrizePix is so simple to play. You can make your picks and submit an entry in less than 60 seconds. They've got quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of players and stat types, which is what makes PrizePix the number one DFS app on the market and with basketball season in full swing you can now pick combo projections across football and basketball from the specials league a league created specifically for combo projections that include two or more players from different sports or leagues for example you can do LeBron James plus Travis Kelsey at a 10.5 combo of three pointers made plus reception so if you've been thinking about getting into daily fantasy sports you've got to give prize picks a chance Go to pricepix.com slash locked on NBA and use code locked on NBA, all lowercase, for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, that's pricepix.com slash locked on NBA with promo code locked on NBA for a first deposit match up to $100. Price Picks is daily fantasy sports made easy. And continuing on here at Locked On NBA Monday, some exciting news is Locked On has launched the first ever National Sports 24-7 streaming channel on YouTube. Locked On Sports Today is here for you 24-7 covering the top sports stories of the day with the local experts of Locked On plus our national shows covering every single league. Go to Locked On Sports Today on YouTube and subscribe for the first ever National Sports 24-7 streaming channel. Joining us now is the host of Locked On Pacers, Tony East. You can track down wherever you listen to your podcast and on YouTube. Just search Locked On Pacers. Tony, you were there in Las Vegas live and in person for the first ever, the inaugural NBA in-season tournament. So we're going to get into what the experience was like specifically for this Indiana Pacers team. But I want to know what your experience was like. What was it like just being there and soaking it all in?
2: It was very cool. First ever event that the NBA has ever had and I'm certain now after being there it will not be the last. Uh it was very spectacular, both because it was Las Vegas and because it was a big event. Uh and I of I think everybody knows this, but I think the NBA is pretty happy that the Lakers were there. That added to the number of fans and the you know popularity of it. But that's a good thing, right? That's that's not a bad thing at all. And it was, you know, a lot of marquee reporters, Adam Silver spoke to the media, lots of events going on for the players, for the fans. It was a really big deal, and the fact that the games were awesome and uh, high intensity, and you know, very much marquee and looked forward to, I think says a lot about it. It was really fun to be there and be a part of it, and the Pacers, of course, the darlings of the world for a uh, for a week here.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, they were on a bit of a like kind of a little Cinderella run, whatever you want to call it. They yeah. beat the Celtics. It looked like, you know, Tyrese Halliburton, Obi Toppin, both questionable for that game. They get in, they play, beat the Celtics, then they beat the Bucs. And then they're there in the in the tournament, the final game against the Lakers. And they fell a little bit short there. You know, their storybook ending coming to a bit of an early close. It, it felt like the Lakers were really able to kind of make things tough for the Pacers offensively there in, in the title game. They kind of had like this eight to 11 point lead like the entire time. What was the biggest... Biggest reason that Indy couldn't pull off the the win against L.A. there.
2: Yeah, it never felt like, you know, even when the Pacers had it at five or six, it never felt like they had a chance because they could never truly go on a run. It was always just two or two, one or two baskets. And then Lakers had an answer. And so even when the Pacers got it to three in the fourth quarter, Cam Reddish scores twice, game's over. Pacers never got within one possession again. To me, it was all about the size. A problem the Pacers have had all season against some some teams is like LeBron James is going to be good against everybody right Anthony Davis usually right he is sort of a roller coaster but is going to be good against everybody I had no doubt in a game like that on ESPN big stage that they were going to be good and be hard for the Pacers you you kind of bake that in but guys like Cam Reddish and guys like Torian Prince and guys like Rui Achimura Rui didn't play that much but like they typically do more damage against the Pacers than other types of teams just because the Pacers are pretty small, right? When Obi Toppin comes out, therefore is Aaron Nismith e. or Ben Matherin or you know Buddy Heald was guarding LeBron at times. Like that is just the size the Pacers have to live with, and so for years they've talked about like the the stars do well against everybody, but your you know Harrison Barnes level wings, for example, not to pick on Harrison Barnes, but that tier of players tends to go above their expectation in games against the Pacers because they have an easier matchup or a smaller opponent, and the Lakers are huge everywhere, and their size on offense helped, and on defense, they could throw length at Tyrese Halbert. He still had a nice game, but not nearly up to the high-profile outings he had been having leading up to that game. So to me, the story of the basketball game itself was the Lakers' size was just something – the Pacers didn't have answers for it. It's a problem they've had for forever and something they'll certainly have to address if they want to continue their ascent that they started this week.
0: How important just overall, though, was this experience for this, this Pacers team, right? Third youngest team in the NBA being there, you know, uh, national TV, high stakes, all of it.
2: Massive. I mean, it, you you nailed it. Like, it's really interesting because they're playing well this year. They've beaten a ton of good teams that people think of them as like uh, becoming established. but. Over half their rotation in that championship game is on a rookie-scale contract right now, and that doesn't even account for, you know, Andrew Nembhard didn't play. He's in his second year. Their lottery pick, Jarius Walker, from this season got in with, like, a minute left. Like, they are still young, and their GM, Chad Buchanan, said before the season they're thinking long-term. So that was what this was all about for them. Experience, right? Like, you, to get a meaningful playoff-type atmosphere experience for a team that, like, Tyrese Halburn's never been in a postseason game— Buddy Heal's never been in a postseason game. He's 31. A lot of those rookie skill guys haven't made it far. Aaron Niesmith being the exception, and Bruce Brown obviously won a championship last year. So that was that was, I think, the biggest thing they gained from this, besides obviously some confidence that they can really hang with or beat anybody. They they got a ton of meaningful, you know, nerves before a game. Jitters, ESP. Oh my gosh, Mike Breen is on the call. Doris Burke's right there, right? Like that is a big deal to these players. And you have to learn how to overcome those, what it takes to play with those emotions, what it takes to walk out there and go, Oh, we're playing LeBron on a big stage, right? Like that's going to matter for them. And maybe that doesn't manifest right away, but all of a sudden they have, you know, seven games of meaningful playoff experience instead of, you know, whatever it would be at the end of this season. I think that's going to be the biggest thing they gain from this beyond, of course, the fact that the quarterfinals and semifinals were regular season games that they didn't in fact win in, in the standings.
0: It's so weird that like, wait, now we have yet another NBA game that just like exists <laughs> in limbo somewhere where like, you know, you had Lakers fans, Pacers fans, like scanning like the score, you know, the, the standing list. Like, why didn't we pick up a dub like, or, a, or, an L like what happened in the standings? And it's, it's just really funny about that.
2: Exist. Like they go back to reality so fast. Dustin Dopirak, the Pacers beat writer for the Indy star nailed this. Like what a reality shift for the Pacers that Tyrese Halliburton, Daps up of flave on the floor after the game and then flies on a flight to go play the Pistons in Detroit on Monday. Like, what a what a change in 40 hours that emotional roller coaster has to be from this tournament.
0: It's almost like the NBA in-season tournament is just like a little fever dream that happens in the middle part of the season. <laughs> you got to right. come back down to reality when it comes to Tyrese Halliburton, man. He he was just absolutely sensational playing on another level yeah. i think he is clear cut like all nba first team caliber this season i think you got there's a strong argument that he should be in the mvp consideration at this point with as good as the pacers are playing how their their high octane offense it all starts and stops with him so just i mean when when do we stop pretending that this Halliburton Sabonis trade was a win-win trade for both sides. That's that. That's my first question here for you, Tony, because it, like you look at the uh, like ascendancy, the upward trajectory that Halliburton is on. He is clearly a superstar level player right now.
2: Yeah, he's 23 and he's one of the best. Uh, pick your number 8, 10, 13, whatever you want to cut it off at players in the league right now, right? Like his stats are ridiculous and some teams with size have figured out how to slow him Orlando in LA, but he'll figure it out. He's adjusted to everybody. Yeah, um, I saw this, like, like, I don't, I hate rehashing trades years later. I saw this when the Kings made the trade. It was like, if the Sa- Sacramento Kings are a farmer, they traded a Ferrari for a tractor. Uh, the the tractor is <laughs> way more important to the farmer, but, like, most people would be like, yeah, the Ferrari, I want that. So, I thought that was a really good way of that's a good, that's describing what this analogy. was. That's
0: incredible oh my God. Yeah,
2: I thought that was perfect. That was forever ago. I think it was a Kings fan, actually, who put that out. I thought that was brilliant and a good way of putting it. Um, The Pacers are certainly very happy that that they made the trade. That's what I will say in response to that. I mean, yeah, he, like Kevin Garnett's tweeting twice during the season, like, yeah, dude, put this guy in the MVP conversation. His stats are ridiculous. And he very rarely has an off nine. I think that's kind of the mark of a star is it's an every night thing
0: yeah he's the, the consistency is there and that's that's what made it kind of stood out so so much in the in the title game right is the lakers were able to kind of contain him a little bit it looked like they yeah. they really did find a way to slow him down that and and hopefully that's something that he can look at and and study and learn from and be able to kind of counteract moving forward teams with length that were kind of they're basically blitzing him all night right like daring yeah. the pacers to beat them 4 on 3 in the half court
2: it's really interesting because he's such a natural distributor to to his credit it's such a big strength of his that he can pass like crazy and never turn it over but there's a lot of games and times where the Pacers best offense is like Tyrese Halberton just go look for your shot shoot score right and the Lakers because they're huge and have length can really make it hard for him to find those shots and look for that space which credit to them for that but it's such like an unnatural instinct for him to be like yeah I'm the guy I score have to score first, right yeah and yeah and I think he's only 23 he'll figure it out but you know that you see that in games like the Lakers game where it took really till the middle of the third quarter for him to realize where the driving lanes were. They were you know, moving their pick and roll more to the side so he could have more space. And it, it worked a little bit, but it not completely. He had 20 and 11 and I'm like growing the guy, but you know, it, it, it just, it was slower. It took longer and he will figure it out. But it's, it's very interesting that, you know, usually you think of stars as like, they're such good scores. They can change the game because they can put the ball in the bucket. Like for him, it's really dialing in and making sure he knows he's the right level of aggression. and, He'll figure it out. He always does. But you saw in that game what what his thinking can be sometimes.
0: That's that's the real mark of a star you could put up 2011 and you're still going to get grilled because the <laughs> expectations right, are now right. monumental for what you can actually produce. How much better could Tyrese Halliburton get on his superstar climb? What lessons can the Pacers ultimately learn from their in-season tournament experience? You're going to have us cover for all of that and so much more over at Locked On Pacers. Tony, thanks for stopping by Locked On NBA with me.
2: Thanks for having me, Jackson.
0: Coming up, how James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, and Paul George are starting to find their groove for the L.A. Clippers. And Russell Westbrook in his new role off the bench. Does he need to be providing more, or is what he's giving the Clippers enough? And is he content in that role off the bench? We're going to get there in just one moment. First, today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. As the weather gets colder, the NFL offers stay hot on FanDuel. Right now, new customers can get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 if your team wins, and all you have to do is wager $5. It's that easy. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there is no better time to get in on the action. Right now, you can take a look at the outright betting favorites for Super Bowl 58. The San Francisco 49ers starting to kind of run away with it at plus 260. The Ravens a little far off at plus 600. The Dolphins right behind them at plus 700 and they're rounding out the top five, you have the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs, both at plus 750 to win the Super Bowl this season. They've also got you covered for spreads, player props, over-unders, and so much more. So visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get started this NFL season. Again, that's FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. And final segment here at Locked On NBA Monday. Be sure to stay tuned in throughout the week as we have you covered for all of the NBA breakdowns and analysis right here at Locked On NBA with our rotating panel of hosts, including Matt Moore and David Ramil on Tuesdays, John Corrales and Jake Madison on Wednesdays, Nick Angset and Patha the Designer on Thursdays, and Adam Mares and Wes Goldberg on Fridays. And joining us now is the host of Locked On Clippers, Darian Vaziri, who can track down wherever you listen to your podcast and on YouTube. Just search Locked On at Clippers. And Darian, it kind of feels like the Clippers are maybe finding their groove a little bit here. Things were a little rough early on, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the, the, the start of the big four era, right? They had that six game losing streak, trying to make things work with the, you know, Russ, Harden, Kawhi, and PG all in the starting lineup together. Then... Russell Westbrook makes the sacrifice play, whatever moves to the bench. And since that point, they've gone eight and three, including four and one in their last five. So what has that new starting lineup with with Terrence Mann plugged in there instead of Russ allowed the Clippers to do differently in order to kind of turn things around after a bit of that rough start?
3: It does two things. One, it lets you have Terrence Mann guard the opposing team's best players. So you at least take that burden off of Kawhi or Paul George. So that's what he's on this team to do. That's why they were... Resistant to trade him is they want Terrence to guard whoever the other team's best player is. Now, I'm not saying he's a lockdown defender by any stretch, but he's good and he's going to work hard, which will help out Kawhi and Paul George on that end. And then offensively, it doesn't have, uh, it allows for it not to be as clunky in the sense that you don't have everyone just deferring to each other. Now the roles are very laid out simply. Kawhi is the man, Paul George is basically, you know, the 1B kind of thing. And James Harden is the primary ball handler, playmaker. He has the ball in his hands the most. So not having a balance that Russell Westbrook and James Harden both want to play point guard thing and having a guy like Terrence, who's just going to do the little things, that makes it so that you go from now an awkward big four to a big three that fits pretty well together. And you're starting to see more of what you know, the role that James Harden played in Brooklyn, and I saw a stat the other day, he's already played as many games with Kawhi and Paul George as he did with Kyrie and KD all together. And I think that's including the playoffs. So it's it's starting to come together, and the defense has really stepped up, and Vince Zubots being a huge reason for that.
0: That's such an embarrassing stat when you think about just what that trade cost them and the, the fact that that big three is never able to really put it together all the – Adversity. I don't know. I'm, that's, not, that's not the right word for it. It's just, you know, they, de- they dealt with a lot. But uh, Harden, over these last five games, is up to, you know, rough start for Harden. He said it himself at one point that he wasn't quite in, you know, James Harden shape, uh, you know, didn't have a training camp. And we're all looking around like, who's the guy whose fault this is? But um, it, it is what it is. He's up to, over these last five games, 19, 4, and 8 uh, on 49% shooting from the floor. He's shooting 47% from three How are you kind of seeing him settle into this new role with the Clippers? Because I know early on, one of the issues, right, is he was he was over deferring, right? He was being too kind of complacent in in deferring to guys like Kawhi, like PG uh, or even Russ at times when they were still starting together. How are you seeing kind of settle into this role now?
3: Well, his pick and roll chemistry with the Avicis Zubats is picking up for sure. I mean, one thing we know is James Harden is one of the best pick and roll players I in the league has ever seen. His pocket passing is fantastic. His lob passing is really good. I think he's a better passer than Westbrook, even though they're both great passers. I think Harden uh, throws a more wide variety of passes, and I'm a little bit less nervous about the turnover thing with Harden. The second way he settled in, in my opinion, is becoming more comfortable shooting the catch and shoot three. That was one thing that you saw, even though he shot it at a good percentage, he would be a little resistant to shoot it sometimes right off the catch. And with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, they're going to get double-tuned in the post. They're going to get loaded up on. There's going to be opportunities for James Harden to let it fly right off the catch. And I think he's been doing that better over the last – it started after the Denver loss. We lost to the Nuggets without without Jokic – Murray and Aaron Gordon. And after that, they were like, okay, James, you got to start being more aggressive shooting the ball. And it was three straight, I believe, double-digit shot attempt games from Harden. And it started with that Sacramento game, which I believe was his best game as a Clippers so far in Sacramento, where we beat them handedly. And he started out by letting it fly on the catch-and-shoot three, and it opened up everything for him offensively. So when Harden's in that pick-and-roll, he needs to look to score first, and then make the defense react and then make the reads off of that. And that's what he was in Houston for so many years, as you know, more than anyone. So it's about keeping the defense honest. And I think you still want to have James Harden look to score in those pick and roll situations as well. And when he has weaker defenders on him, it's because think about it, he's probably getting the third best defender that a team can go put on him because they're going to put number one options one and two on Kawhi and Paul. So that can open it up for Harden to be even more effective offensively.
0: Yeah. And, and look, Harden's not the same, you know, he's not MVP level James Harden that he was here in Houston, but if if a team can only afford to put their third best defender on him, that's still more or less barbecue chicken, even for current, current day, James Harden to, to carve somebody up. Uh, I will say, man, the, the whole catch and shoot thing with James is so crazy because it's like a, it's like a weird mental thing for him where, it, you know, he, he held onto that habit, you know, well after his tenure here in Houston, but it was always a thing where, you know, he, he dribbled the ball so much and he's such a rhythm guy, right? He had that lullaby dribble where he likes to, you know, lull a defender to sleep and then get to the step back that, he would get, even back when he played with Chris Paul here in Houston, he would get some wide open looks. And it's almost like he needed to take like a rhythm dribble or like a rhythm step back to be able to hit those shots. And so, but that can sometimes cost you, right? If you only have a split second to get the shot off before a defender closes out on you, you'll have some possessions where if you sacrifice that split second for a dribble or to get your rhythm, then you lose the opportunity to actually take the shot. So that is an important note uh, for him to have to be able to hit those shots, especially if Kawhi and and PG are generating them. But on the flip side here, Darian, so you've got James Harden, he's thriving in this new role. Russell Westbrook was the guy who made the sacrifice play, moved to the bench. And this was after, right? He was promised a big role on this Clippers team, promised the starting spot. Since moving to the bench, Russ's averages are, uh, let's just say they're not great. He's averaging nine points, six boards and 4 assists, under 40% shooting from the floor and only 22% from 3. How can Russ managed to find success in this new role, because it kind of feels like it sucks, right? Like he's the guy who was promised all these things and he makes the sacrifice for this Clippers team to be able to be the best version of itself. And now maybe he's he's struggling in this new role.
3: You know, Jackson, it's kind of interesting because you said those stats and I'm actually surprised how bad they really are because it doesn't feel like he's playing that bad. Every Clipper fan seems to be satisfied with the way Westbrook is playing for the most part in this bench role, but it's hard for him you know, Westbrook is a guy who even though he's not the best scorer in the world, I mean, in his prime, he still won a couple scoring titles, but he's usually doing that on high volume, right? Like he's getting himself into rhythm with knowing that he can miss a couple of shots and he's going to get a couple more chances to shoot those shots. And the thing about Russ is the the fit with Harden at this stage of their careers, especially with Kawhi and Paul, is so bad to the point where they're starting to do this thing where they're not even playing them together at all. So think about it. If you have James Harden starting, he's getting around 30 minutes a game. That only leaves 18 maximum minutes if you're separating them like that for Russ to play. So when he's playing under 20 minutes, he's not going to have those big statistical nights. But what he is bringing is that energy, a little bit of pace off the bench. He's had some highlight blocks, huge rebounds. So it looks like Russell Westbrook's role going forward is going to be as a secondary playmaker off the bench. That's an energy guy more than anything, like literally like an energizer bunny guy. And I wouldn't expect him to have big scoring nights or anything like that, or even really close games. And there's a lot of Russell Westbrook fans that are really disappointed about this. They're saying they want him traded. They want him bought out all this, but it all comes down to this at the end of the day, does Russell Westbrook want to win a championship by any means, or does he want, to get 30 minutes, 20 minutes, and just have fun to end his career by playing the way he's always played. Because I feel genuinely sorry for the guy, because it's different if he was playing poorly and then got uh, put on the bench for Harden. But he was really – he had the highest net rating through a couple of games with Kawhi and Paul, and he only started nine games with them last year. Ten games, actually. The tenth game was the one Paul got hurt last season with those two. So his sample size is really not that big. And he got replaced because the front office didn't really trust him in that role and wanted to bring in an improvement and their eyes were just hardened. So it comes down to how happy Russ is. My body language, like observation so far is for the most part, it's been good. If you know anything about Russell Westbrook, and I know you do, you've had him on your team for a year. If he feels like he's playing well, he's going to be all smiles. And he's gonna be the most lively person in the arena. And if he feels like he's playing bad, you can tell he's not a guy that can hide his emotions very well. He's a very wears hard on his sleeve kind of person, as am, as am I. And so I relate to him in that way. But, yeah, right now it's going okay. The question is, you go got into February, March, a couple more months. Is Russell Westbrook okay with playing less than 20 minutes every game? That will be, remain to be seen.
0: How will James Harden and the Clippers continue to gel uh, with this new era? Not quite a big four era anymore, I guess. And will Russell Westbrook continue to be content with his role coming off the bench? That super sub off the bench. You'll have us covered for all that and more over at Locked on Clippers. Darian, I appreciate you stopping by Locked on NBA with
3: me. Anytime, and it still feels like a big four. I'll just tell you that.
0: That's going to do it for another Monday edition of Locked On NBA. If you haven't done so yet, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Just search Locked On NBA. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And while you're there on YouTube, Be sure to go check out Locked On Sports today. It's the very first ever 24-7 streaming channel available on YouTube. They'll have you cover all the top sports stories of the day with the local experts of Locked On plus our national shows covering every single league. So be sure to go subscribe to Locked On Sports today on YouTube. It's the first ever national sports 24-7 streaming channel. But as always, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to having you back right here at Locked On NBA. The biggest stories with the local experts.